So this is Emily Garner. I'm here um, on the We Talk Health with West Tennessee Healthcare, and I am clinical manager with West Tennessee Heart and Vascular Center. And kind of part of our purpose in this is to get education out to the community about heart-related subjects um, to try to decrease the risk for heart attack and strokes. So here with us today, we have Dr. Theodore Wright. He is a cardiothoracic surgeon here with West Tennessee Healthcare, and he is absolutely amazing. And he's going to tell us a little bit more about AFib. So Dr. Wright, can you kind of just tell us what AFib is and what's actually going on with the heart while they're in AFib? Sure, sure. If you don't mind, I want to give you a little little background about my interest in, in atrial fibrillation and why you know, oftentimes we hear patients talking about they have a little bit of AFib. And you come to find out that they're... they're Literature and, and has come to show that there, there's no such thing. Um, the truth of the matter is that you know we, we talk so much about cancer, you know, and, and five year survival. How how many people are alive at five years um, uh, once they've been diagnosed and treated for cancer? So just to give you an example, uh, breast cancer overall survival is probably eighty eight percent at five years. Um, but there's literature showing that for Medicare patients over the age of sixty five who are diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, their five year survival is fifty percent, five out of ten. And so if, if you take that and put that in perspective and think about how much time and energy is spent talking about cancer mm-hmm. relative to, to atrial fibrillation, there's a little bit of a disconnect. And so I think it's important that, that, we, that we talk about this topic. Mm-hmm. Now, now, just to talk about the, the anatomy and, 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 and such, uh, atrial fibrillation is a very common um, arrhythmia, and it's, it's due to a, a bunch of different factors, some of which are, are medical. You know, People who have hypertension or obesity or obstructive sleep apnea, um, uh, diabetes, um, they can be set up so there's a close co- correlation to atrial fibrillation. What ends up happening is that because of strain on the heart muscle, um, it, it's, its rhythm becomes uh, less regular. Mm-hmm. And because of that, um, because the heartbeat is irregular, irregularly irregular, um, flow in the heart, uh, blood flow in the heart is it, stymied. It, it's, it's more difficult. It's slower. And for that reason, uh, we, that's, because, that's why we have symptoms and problems. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's less blood flow in the heart, folks are short of breath. Um, they can have chest pain. Um, they can feel the palpitations because the heart rhythm is not is not normal. And that can cause anxiety mm-hmm. and stress uh, and decrease quality of life from that perspective. And then, because the blood flow in the heart is not very um, uh, is not constant, um, blood can pool in the heart. And when that happens, blood clots can form, and those clots can form strokes. And that's what people are worried about and know the most about. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, truth of the matter is that atrial fibrillation, if untreated, it leads to shorter less productive lives um, because of those reasons, all of those reasons. Um, so, Dr. Wright, how common is AFib? Oh, good, good question. Um, in general, I'd, I'd say it's one of the most common um, cardiac arrhythmias um, that, that, that we see, and, and there are reasons for that which we'll talk about. But in a nutshell, there's probably about 5 million people in America with atrial fibrillation. But the, the important thing to know is that that number is growing. And the reason it's growing is that because it is associated with, with a few things. One is increasing age. Um, and as our population gets older, the, those folks, the, the incidence of atrial fibrillation goes up. Um, and, and besides that, um, we're what we call the coronary valley, believe it or not. Um, why do I say that? Well, there's high levels of obesity, um, smoking, diabetes, um, and all of those things are, are pathways, roads to, to, to atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in as much as you can monitor those risk factors, that's great. It minimizes your overall risk. But as a population... Uh, it, the incidence is quite high and growing for those for those reasons. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, um, you know, because a lot of people I know that at times they may not have any symptoms at all. Exactly right. So, in other words, this can just kind of 
come on itself and right. exactly and other right. symptoms start to arise. Yeah, yeah. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So there are um, kind of other conditions, acute conditions that can cause atrial fibrillation. Folks who may have a, a pneumonia or, or a urinary tract infection, they have some kind of infection that's active that might cause some irritability. Folks who have surgery, a lung surgery or heart surgery, we see it in 30% of folks who have surgery, they, they can develop atrial fibrillation. And what that speaks to is that that unmasks um, some underlying predisposition to atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. And if you can control those other factors, you can treat that UTI, you can, you can treat that pneumonia, uh, the, or you, you let folks get six or eight weeks out from their heart or lung surgery in general, it's self-limited, meaning it, it doesn't recur, and, and, and you're fine. But in some folks who have ongoing obesity, ongoing sleep apnea, ongoing hypertension, then, then that's less likely to be the case. And so if you have some kind of susceptibility to developing atrial fibrillation, it'll certainly, it can most certainly manifest in that, in that setting. So what do you, what is one thing that you want to kind of help educate the public on how they can prevent AFib? Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, general heart health, I think, is certainly um, the, the best thing. Know your numbers. Right? Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, as we talk about in, during, in Heart Health Month, you know, uh, blood pressure and your blood sugar and, and, and those things, that's, that, all, those things are important. Um, exercising regularly, important. Um and, and, and that's probably the best you could do now. Now, having said that, I've, I've treated patients with atrial fibrillation who had who are all quite healthy on the outside and appear to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you and you rule out all the other issues. Another issue can others could be uh, hyperthyroidism and, and other metabolic syndromes. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you work through all those things, and, and yet they they fail medical management for atrial fibrillation. And then at that point, then. And we have to talk about. I, I think personally, uh, getting it back into a normal rhythm. Unfortunately, I think in the past we had this. We've had this term called chronic AFib, mm-hmm. and, and today, in this day and age, that means basically you've given up on on putting getting a patient back into a normal rhythm, and that that really is not. Um, I, I believe um, the, the best course necessarily. If there's any way that we can possibly get them into a normal rhythm, uh, folks will benefit from it. This is why you're so great. Oh, well. <laughs> Um, so what are some of the treatments that you have available for Sure, sure. I'll, I'll divide it kind of in the, the, the discovery phase, the acute phase, when, when people are first diagnosed, and then later, later kind of chronic phase. If, if individually, by the way, you know, atrial fibrillation is a huge cause of uh, ER admissions. Um, and, and what happens is people feel this palpitations. They feel a short of breath, which is unusual. And they go to the emergency room, and what, finds, what happens is their primary care doc or their emergency room doctor finds that they have an irregular rhythm. And then from, from there, you have to decide what to do. Um, if someone is, has low blood pressure and is, is looking poorly, that, that doctor might shock them to try to get them back into a normal rhythm. Or they may start a medication in order to, to, to get their rhythm back into a, a normal state. Um, and then if, if there's a death in that, great. And a lot of times that's the case, at least in the, the acute, that early phase, the discovery phase. Um, and then we start on a blood thinner, again, to minimize that risk of stroke because you can't predict who may go back in atrial fibrillation after that initial shock or that initial restoration of normal rhythm. And, that, and then they're followed. They'll be followed over time to see if they have current symptoms. And then that becomes, unfortunately, begets a long road usually of multiple admissions to the ER, to their primary care physician, um, and, and unfortunately sometimes to the hospital until this can be regulated and dealt with. Mm-hmm. But you know, once you get past that point, then you have a, a subset of patients who um, do well. They can be restored to normal sinus rhythm. They deal with these other risk factors that may have caused the atrial fibrillation, the diabetes, the hypertension, all those things. And they can go on and live their life. And, and as long as they monitor and deal with those comorbidities, uh, they can do fine. 
Unfortunately, however, the medications don't always work, and over time, uh, the, the medications themselves can um, be ineffective. Um, sometimes the blood thinners themselves can be difficult to, to, to control. Mm-hmm. Um, the blood could be too thin, um, in, in which case they can have bleeding complications or it could be too thick and they end up with a stroke. And so then the goal really becomes how do we get back to that normal rhythm? I'm not trying to manage atrial fibrillation with blood thinners, uh, but to really deal with that normal sinus rhythm. And that, that's when people have failed medications or otherwise just want to seek out other options, then we go down a different road. Um, and that usually means procedures of some sort. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, you know, the first treatments for atrial fibrillation were surgical. Um, and, and that was done, work done in the 1980s by a physician, James Cox, who did a lot of work on this. And um, the, the problem was he, he created a great operation to fix AFib, and it worked, but only for him. No one else could do it. Um, but over time, um, we've learned a lot more about atrial fibrillation, what causes it, where it comes from. This has to do with a lot of, of catheter ablative techniques that have been started um, over time. And as we've learned more about it, we've gotten better at it. Um, and so in our practice here with St. Healthcare, we're very aggressive about treating folks with atrial fibrillation when they present for other disease processes, when they have coronary disease and need bypass surgery, or they have valve disease, and that there's some component of atrial fibrillation involved, and we'll deal with that. But then, you know, there is a population of patients out there who have atrial fibrillation and nothing else. They've done everything right. They've controlled all the risk factors as best they can, uh, but they've failed medications. And the question is, what do we do for those patients? Um, fortunately, we, we do have a greater understanding of atrial fibrillation, where it comes from. And there are certain parts of the heart which can, in fact, start and then propagate atrial fibrillation. And so we can target that surgically. And that's what we focus on. Great. Um, I know that you are an expert with the maze procedure, and this is uh, more of a minimally invasive procedure here that we do at West Tennessee Healthcare with you. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. Let's start from, from the very beginning. So the maze procedure was the, the initial open, maximally invasive procedure that was created back in the 80s that we talked about. Um, but since that time, we, we've learned a little bit more about how to approach atrial fibrillation from a surgical standpoint, and that's allowed us to modify our techniques somewhat. Um, so in general, uh, when faced with a patient with atrial fibrillation who's failed these other medical therapies, we have to look at the patient. We have to decide what is, and, and, and find out what is the best tool in the toolbox to help that particular person. If you have a, a patient who has a lot of what we call comorbid conditions, they have um, uh, diabetes, hypertension, they have heart failure, they have a leaky valve, they're not going to be a, they'll be a candidate for a maze procedure, a cardiac ablation procedure, but it's more likely to be maximally invasive. An incision through the breastbone so we can see all parts of the heart where this uh, atrial fibrillation could be coming from and deal with that. Now, for some select patients who don't have those other conditions, have sole atrial fibrillation, there's, there, in some instances, we can treat them in a minimally invasive fashion, um, whether it's through a catheter done by an electrophysiologist or through what we call a, a mini-maze-type procedure, where we uh, make small incisions on, any, on each side of the chest, and using scopes and, and long instruments, we're able to find the areas, again, of the heart that are causing this atrial fibrillation and ablate those. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and folks do well. Uh, but you know, again, I think the, what, the message I would I would send to folks is that um, if you have atrial fibrillation, um, d- don't don't just live with it. If you're in atrial fibrillation, um, ask your primary care physician, your primary care provider, why? Because again, as we talked about, the long term survival with this disease is is not great, and it doesn't get better. Um, and atrial fibrillation, the longer you're in it, the harder it is to treat. And then, and then what I would say is that, you know, approach someone who has the tools in the toolbox to, to help you. 
And I, and I think fortunately we, we, we have the interest and the skill set here to do that. Perfectly said. So um, if you do want an appointment, we actually, you guys take new patients. Absolutely. So you can call 541-3310, and they can come in and make an appointment with you or one of your uh, colleagues. And um, thank you again for coming and helping to educate the public. And um, thank you again for listening to We Talk Health. This is Emily and Dr. Wright. Thank you.